All right. <laughs> Our campaign that we're in right now is called Reconstruct. But before we kind of dive into that, let's pray. Would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, uh, Lord, we just come to worship you. Lord, be honored by the... Uh, disposition of our hearts towards you. God, would you just put us in a place of worship and honor to bring you glory and, Lord, to seek truth in your word. So, Lord, be honored by how we worship you today, by how we listen to your word, and, Lord, how we speak with one another and how we love one another here in our church community. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, our campaign is called Reconstruct. We're talking a lot about how to reconstruct our faith. Um, and the idea of this is to kind of go back to the basics, those core principles, those core truths that we build our faith upon. Um, for the last few weeks, I've kind of been discussing this and, and briefly running through what we're talking about with this reconstruct idea. First week, we talked about how we construct a faith and then we deconstruct and then we reconstruct a faith and we kind of go through this process constantly with various uh, with various theological issues, various questions, various aspects of life and Christianity. Um, but over the last week or so, John and I have been having some conversations and with, with others, with some of you, and we're kind of coming to the conclusion that we need to clarify some things a little bit more and kind of dive into it. So we, we made pictures. Ha! Pictures are worth a thousand words, right? So John made these first set of pictures. I made the second set of pictures. First set is much better than the second set. So John did, yeah, he's much better at graphic design than I am. So this isn't really graphic design-y. This is like clip art in keynote, but whatever. So, so, um, <laughs> so this is a Christian guy, whatever. We just threw a picture up there, right? Um, he has some Christ-like traits. The goal of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus and to live more like him, to think more like him, just be more like Jesus. Um, stereotypical, whatever, Christian guy. He has some Christ-like traits. He really loves God, like honestly loves God. He loves helping other people. He's very generous with his resources. Um, but this Christian guy, he's also got a lot of blind spots. And blind spots are blind to us. We don't know them. We don't see them, right? He's also probably a little overly certain, a little a little smug certainty and a little overly arrogant like we talked about in week two of this campaign. Uh, he's got a little bit of a resentment for authority. He's motivated by fear, not so much out of faith. That's a part of his life as well. He's also got some untrue beliefs and things that he thinks are true that just aren't true. Things like an over-individualized gospel. So the gospel is solely, well, yeah, I don't want to jump into that too much because then it's going to send me on another rabbit trail, okay? <laughs> but without regard to the gospel of the kingdom, like the kingdom of God, it's solely personal, individualized salvation. Um, prosperity teaching. Because he grew up in the Western church, there's some aspects of prosperity theology that have crept into his concept of Christianity. And he holds those things to be true when they aren't really true according to Scripture. Okay, there's, there's lots of those. <clears throat> okay, so we're all clear. We've got these various things. Now, what happens is, and where this gets really tricky, is these lines begin to blur. They begin to uh, all kind of run together. Where one starts, where your blind spot starts and your Christ-like traits uh, stops, becomes blurry. And we don't really know which one is which. And these untrue beliefs, they all begin to blur together. 
We allow our blind spots to inform our sense of God's will. Our untrue beliefs to inform our concept of what God is doing in the world, like our own over-individualized gospel, or what we, we miss the kingdom. And before we know it, these ideas, they all just kind of lump into our Christianity. And we bec it becomes cultural Christianity then. And so these untrue beliefs or these blind spots, we begin to think of as what it means to be a Christian. And so they're all kind of entangled together. So what we're trying to do in this campaign is discuss this process that we all need to constantly be going on of recognizing these untrue beliefs, um, these blind spots that we've entwined with our Christian faith and begin to pull them apart so that we're left with, we can then reconstruct our faith around Christ. So what this looks like visually is we begin to recognize, okay, I'm overly arrogant. <laughs> I'm a little smug in my certainty on things that aren't so certain. Um, I should perhaps humbly learn to seek truth more and hold the truth more humbly towards others instead of bashing them over the head with it on social media, which we love to do. Um, so then we begin, so then we start to look a little bit more like Jesus and we just pick colors. It's not saying anything by blue. Like you just look more blue, right? And this process continues. We keep doing, going through this process regularly with whatever issue we come across where we realize that this is not according to the truth of scripture. So we deconstruct it. We have to begin by deconstructing it and then reconstructing it around the truth of Jesus. So what we're talking about in this campaign is some of these very basic ideas of how to reconstruct our faith. What are the things that we hold to? What are the things we need to cling to in order to reconstruct our faith around Christ and the truth of his scripture? So today we're talking about tribalism for identity in Christ. What we want to trade out is this cultural Christian concept of tribalism for our identity in Christ. If you're not familiar with the term tribalism, it's used in pop culture a lot today, especially Christian pop culture. Big picture, there's two kind of concepts of it. Big picture, it simply means the state or the fact of being organized into tribe or tribe. So it's just grouping people together. It's like exit polls, right? You've got all of these different categories or groups of people. Um, that's natural. That's going to happen. Every society does that. Every culture does that. We as individuals need to do that because we need to feel at home in communities. So we do exist in communities and tribes and groups. And we, we think of ourselves as a part of groups. Um, for example, here, John Doe. There's way too many Johns. So I thought earlier, I was like, I'm just going to, I'm going to say Joe instead of John, but Joe Doe sounds really stupid. So I'm not going to say that. So John Doe, he's this 30 year old guy. Um, He's white, he's American, he's male, economically, he's middle class, uh, religiously, he's Baptist, or was raised in a Baptist church, we'll say. Those are all tribes that can be described as tribes. So his age puts him in the millennial tribe, right? Uh, he's racially white, he's an American male, so American identity, he's male, so he's economically, he is middle class. So all of these are various tribes that he can think of himself as a part of. And when we talk about tribalism, we usually mean it in the negative sense though, that 
as you think of yourself as a part of these communities or these tribes or groupings of people, um, then those behaviors, those attitudes that stem from loyalty to that group um, begin to be formed within you, okay? So, a couple of, of non-confrontational examples. We'll say that. <laughs> I'll get to the confrontational ones later. A couple of the simple examples. You've got, so this guy, he's a millennial, right? Let's say John Doe, he's a millennial. He has never known what life is like without personal in-home computing. So he really values information, acquiring information very quickly. So if you need to know an answer to something, you got your phone, you got your computer, you find the answer to whatever question that you have. And you have all of this information in the back of your head. So unbeknownst to him for years, he begins to kind of form this perspective in his mind that information needs to happen right now. You need to know a lot about a lot. Like you just have to know everything about everything, which is a very common millennial thing, right? And so now he st starts to devalue other types of information, like wisdom that is acquired from, for example, his grandfather, right? That wisdom is acquired over a long period of time, over long conversations, listening to a lot of drawn-out stories with a lot of details that he didn't really need, right? But for him, he's not, he doesn't value that. And also, his grandpa has asked him how to turn on his computer more times than he can even fathom, and how to do this update or that update, and so he's just like, yeah! All of this kind of feeds into his, what it will eventually become, a disdain for his grandpa and the wisdom and the knowledge that his grandfather has. And then again, unbeknownst to him, he begins to apply that to the entire boomer generation. And so he begins to devalue the, an entire group of people, an entire tribe. It happens subtly, it happens over a long period of time. And it's usually a blind spot and completely unbeknownst to us. Okay, so that's one thing that happens commonly. Uh, another example that I thought of because I had a dream about it last night. I'm a, I'm a Bears fan. Confession time. Yeah, let's go. See, this, this brings out the tribal warfare more than anything else. All right, Bears fans over here, Packers fans over there. Let's go. Um, <laughs> if they were playing today, that would be fun. I don't know, whatever. Um, so I'm a Bears fan. I grew up in Illinois, and <laughs> so I had, I hate the Packers. I hate the Packers. That is not too strong of a word to describe my emotional state towards the green and gold. Like when I see green and gold, it, it elicits a unsanctified emotional response in me. Um, especially when Aaron Rodgers is throwing touchdowns all the time. I hate it. It drives me nuts. There's, there's a lot of like deep-seated, I'm kidding. <laughs> this is me on my counselor's couch. Um, so can't stand the Packers, hate them. Last night, I had a dream that two of my friends, um, Seth Barr and Kevin Coldaway, were coaching the Packers. So like Seth Barr in my dream had the visor on, he was arguing with the refs, he was super intense, he was heated. And Kevin, he's got his hat, he's just crunching numbers, drawing plays, it was fantastic. But I woke up, I was like laughing to myself, like this is a stupid dream. I mean, it was silly, but it was of dreams, it was fun. So I woke up though and I was frustrated by it because I want to hate the Packers. 
And it's really hard to hate the Packers when your friends are a part of the organization. So for many of us, this is really how this tends to happen when we start to identify these, this tribalism, is when people that we love, or we begin to be in relationship with in some capacity, are a part of a different tribe. And then it forces us to reconsider these blind spots that we've had, or the, this wrong thinking that was a part of our tribe. And we're like, what on earth? I love this person, even though they're a part of this other group of people. So then we start to unpack this and untangle it, and we have to deconstruct it and think through it. So those are simple examples. All right, here's, uh, here's my drawing that I did this morning. Uh, <laughs> I hope the illustrations help. Christians, this is supposed to be our life, right? Or we're supposed to be centered on Christ, that he is to be the center of our identity. And then we have all these other aspects of who we are. So our family, for many of us, we would say, come next, comes next. Like whatever uh, your husband, wife, child, uh, son, daughter, uh, brother, sister, like those aspects of who you are to the people who are closest to you. Politics is a big one. So however you consider yourself uh, in, within the political sphere, Democrat, Republican, Independent, whatever. And then there's career, like whatever job you do. So this isn't necessarily everybody's spheres, right? But if you're, you, you love your career, you love what you do, you describe yourself, and somebody asks you what do you do for work, the first thing you say is, I'm a pastor, right? Something like that. Those are all aspects of who you are. And as Christians, we would all say that our identity in Christ needs to be at the center of it. And then our thinking, our actions, our behaviors, how we live, all of that should flow out of our center, flow out of Christ. So that means if our Christian faith, if Christ has anything to say about how we engage with our family, how we engage in our career, who we are in our career, how we engage politically, uh, Christ should inform our thinking on all of these things. And we live out of our identity in Christ primarily. All too often what happens though, and, and what we've seen happen often this last year, is people, we live out of our political identity. So we don't allow Christ to inform how we think about politics, we allow politics to inform how we think about Christ, which eventually happens. So we, we, we engage in this aspect of who we are so much that this kind of becomes our new center. So then instead of Christ informing and, and teaching us how we should engage in politics, we allow politics to teach us how we should engage in our Christian faith and our community of faith. And this is how we become so polarized over political matters and within the church even. And this is not just a right thing. This is not just a left thing. Both, both political sides of the aisle do this. The good news is that we're not the first culture to do this. <laughs> this has been happening from the beginning of time. Um, and this was very common in Jesus' day as well. The political landscape was Tense, 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 tense. Okay, you think that we're very polarized politically today? It's a little bit uh, anachronistic, is the term, right? Reading back into history. Okay, we fought a civil war, civil rights movement. We had a revolutionary war. Imagine the, how tense it was in our culture there. And it was tense in the first century too. Um, this, at this, in this day and age, the people of Israel were... Um, occupied by Rome. Rome was the occupying force. So they set up all of their governments and their authority. So the people of Israel did not have the ability to govern themselves. And they hated that. 
Some hated it, some loved it. <laughs> so it created a lot of tension. And as we're gonna see, this tension, these political arguments, would very easily be bolstered by theological arguments. Okay, so Rome is the occupying force. I can imagine this argument being written up on Facebook and being said in very mean, angry terms, right? That we are the people of God. We're the people of Israel. We're meant to be free. We need to be free from Rome. Therefore, we should fight Rome at every opportunity that we have. Don't pay taxes. Uh, if you see Roman soldiers, like abuse them, heckle them, whatever you can do to uh, overthrow the Romans and to get them out of here because we are the people of God and we are meant to be free so that we can worship God better in Jerusalem. Okay, you see how this political argument is very easily bolstered by a religious argument. That's what they would have done then and that's kind of what we do today. So Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, that's Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Okay, Matthew throws this in here to just remind us that this is a very politically charged, tense moment. All right? That's why they sent some Herodians with him. There's four tribes at play in this one moment. We've got the Herodians. Okay, they, uh, just like their name sounds, supported Herod and his kingship over the area of Judea. So they, the Romans, uh, instituted various forms of government, and Herod was the king that they put in charge over Judea. Uh, Pilate was their local governor over Jerusalem, uh, which we read about in the Gospels a lot. So the Herodians said, we should pay taxes, we should follow Roman rule, and we should submit to their governing authority. Then there's the Pharisees who are here as well. They're probably like the middle ground position. They're more of a religious group than a political group, but in this day and age, they kind of all got blurred together in the same, in the same groupings. Um, they paid their taxes, but they hated it. They wanted Rome out so that they can worship God independently. They would have been making those arguments that I made earlier. So they would jump at any opportunity to get the Romans out. And then there's the zealots, okay? The zealots were like the revolutionaries. <laughs> they, they wanted to go to war now, okay? <laughs> and, and Jesus had a zealot in his disciples, Simon. Not Simon Peter, but Simon the zealot. Your name is Simon the zealot. You're probably zealous and you're a zealot, right? So this guy was like ready to go to war. He's ready to fight. Some scholars think Judas Iscariot was a zealot as well. Um, so they want to roam out now and they wanted to fight. And then there's the Romans, which as we're going to see, if they hear Jesus saying, don't pay taxes to Caesar, they're not going to like that. And Jesus is probably going to get put in prison or something, punished in some way. So you got those four groups of people. You got the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Romans. And they all have very strong political opinions about what, about this question that they're gonna ask. And now these guys, man, I don't know how, how developed the field of psychology was back then, but this is very, this is brilliant. They're like priming the pump to get Jesus to say something crazy, so that hopefully land him in prison. Teacher. We know that you are a man of integrity. There's just, you, oh man, this is great. And that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So Jesus, you speak your mind and I like that about you. <laughs> you don't care what people think. You're a person of integrity. And they're just pu pushing him up so that uh, he'll say something crazy in answer to their question. Tell us then, what is your opinion? 
is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? That's a political question. It's a very political question. One that um, <laughs> many would say, like, we shouldn't even talk about politics at all in church, right? If we're preaching the whole counsel of God and preaching the word, that's what this is. It's a very political question. Should we pay the imperial, imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, they had different forms of taxes. The imperial tax went right to Caesar. It went right to him. The Roman citizens were not, um, were not required to pay this tax. If you were an occupied or a conquered nation, you had to pay the tax if you weren't Roman. So they hated this. Every time they paid their tax, it's a reminder that they are subject to Rome. They hated it. <clears throat> Very politically charged question. So, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Jesus, like this, like honestly, when I zoom out and look at this, I'm like, this is a good question. Because no matter how he answers it, he's going to alienate half of his crowd, half of his following, at least, or more. There's no way to answer this question that will make everybody happy, none. If he answers yes, the zealots and the Pharisees, they're ticked off at him. He says, pay your taxes, they're mad. If he says, no, don't pay your taxes, the Herodians are mad at him and they're probably leaving. They're taking their ball and going home. The Romans, they're probably gonna put him in prison or punish him. So he has no good answer. So in our political climate, my first gut instinct of Jesus is dodge, man. Like just dodge. Start talking and don't stop talking, don't answer, but just talk until everybody's lost interest and they go home and leave you alone. Like, that's how our politicians would handle it, and that's my first instinct. Because it's a good question. There's no way he can answer this without making people angry. Jesus doesn't. He actually answers their question. Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Would have had an image of Caesar on it, and it would have said something like Caesar is Lord, something that indicated Caesar uh, to be divine in some capacity. <clears throat> Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. <laughs> so brilliant. It's so brilliant. It is so wise. So Jesus says, go ahead, pay your taxes. So yes, pay them. He answered the question and he answered it very quickly and clearly. Go ahead, pay taxes. That would have made the zealots and the Pharisees furious, right? But he doesn't stop there. So before the Herodians uh, start cheering and the Romans are like, yes, this is my guy. And the Pharisees and the zealots are like, we hate you. We're taking our ball and going home. We're never talking to you again. Like before this all polar polarization sets in, Jesus points them to the deeper truth, the deeper reality, the ident that they are image bearers of God. When Jesus says, whose uh, inscription is on this coin, it would have brought up, remember, these are very uh, astute Hebrew people. They would have brought up uh, Genesis 1, 26, where, he said, where Genesis tells us that all humans are created in the image of God. So when he says, whose image is on this, it would have connoted those ideas in their mind. And then he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, meaning give Caesar his money, and give to God what is God's, meaning give God all of yourself. Give God you. And what that also would remind them of is Caesar is created in the image of God, too. Uh, not only Caesar 
and God is sovereign then over Caesar and Rome and everything else that's happening so that we don't necessarily have to control all outcomes of our own independence because God is sovereign over this. And then would have also reminded them that, hey, they're political enemies. The uh, hey, hey, zealots, the Herodians are created in the image of God too. Don't forget that. Uh, hey, Pharisees, remember the Romans, they're created in the image of God. Herodians listening, remember zealots are created in the image of God. Those who you've been arguing with over these political matters for decades now, remember they're, they're all created in God's image. Daryl Bach, he says it really well in his commentary on Luke. He says, Jesus wasn't a political revolutionary, nor was he an ardent nationalist. His work transcends politics. And then David Turner, he says, Jesus has truly taught the way of God despite the insincere flattery of his questions. So one of the questions that I get a lot and I'm constantly wrestling with is how do we live in the polarized culture, political culture today? And here Jesus gives us a pretty solid answer. We can speak what is true because his truth transcends politics and we can live and teach the way of God in the midst of all of it. Like back to that circle illustration, for living out of our identity in Christ, we can live and teach the truth of God free of those other polarized political identities or whatever other identity we're trying to live in. Band, you guys can come up and get set up. In the words of Jesus here, you're free to do the right thing, pay your taxes, but also remember that all people are created in the image of God. So, how do we, how do we live in these polarizing times? <laughs> how do we not get sucked up into all the culture wars Live out of our identity in Christ first. Live out of our identity in Christ first. That is to be the center of who we are. This is what we talked about in our last campaign called the Fully Formed Life. Only in Christ is he big enough to be the center, to influence all of these other areas of our lives. If we live out of something else as our center, it will inevitably lead us to a distorted cultural Christianity. It will lead us to hating others who are created in the image of God. And for the Christian, that cannot be so. That's not the case. Your heart is fully submitted to God. Your spirit is alive to God. Your mind can know the truth of God's word and live out of that. You're free to give all of your capacities to God. And in doing so, you find meaning and purpose. And only in Christ, when he is the center of our identity, can our soul be at rest and be at peace. Because otherwise, we will not be people of integrity. We'll be claiming to be followers of Christ, following Jesus, but living out of a different identity that will cause us to disobey the clear teaching of Scripture and not follow the way of Jesus. Lord, do you help us to focus our identity on you? 
Lord, to live out of that. Lord, to convict us when we're living out of another aspect of who we are, even if it may not be bad, but Lord, we're not fully living out of our identity in you, Jesus. Would you influence the way we think about family, about politics, about career, about life? And Lord, would your truth and your word be what moves us and drives us? May all of our actions and our thinking originate from you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. I count on one thing that the same God who never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the working all things out you're working all things out oh yes i will lift you high in the lowest valley yes i will bless your name yes i will sing for joy when my heart is heavy for
God, would you take the aspects of our life that aren't about you, root them out and replace them with more of your love, more of your presence. God, that we would be creatures of constant renewal, constantly becoming more like you, Jesus. Not out of duty, not out of obligation, but because your love is transforming our hearts. Your love is making us more like you, drawing us to you. God of Abraham, you're the God of covenant faithful promises time and time again you have proven you do just what you say though the storms may come and the winds may blow I'll remain steadfast and let my heart learn when you speak a word it will come to faithfulness to me from the rising sun to the setting same I will praise your name great is your faithfulness to me God from age to age through the earth may pass away your word remains the same. Your history can't prove there's nothing you can't do. You're faithful and true. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast and let my
We trust in you. God, we trust that when, when our lives feel unsteady, like, like the ground is loose beneath our feet, like things are changing and we don't know what's going on, Lord. God, we trust that what is unsteady about our life is not you. It's not you, Lord. And God, that even in some situations, you're gonna use that unsteadiness. You're gonna use that to unearth things in us that need to be rooted out of our lives and replaced with more of you, God, more of your goodness, more of your love, more of your presence, more of your kingdom, God. We thank you, Lord. You're so good to us. One more time, sing, I put my faith. I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground, my hope and firm foundation, he'll never let me down. Oh, I put my faith in Jesus, my anchor to the ground. My hope and firm foundation, He'll never let me down. Remember our big idea for today is live out of 
your identity in Christ first. Over the last couple of years, it's become increasingly more easy to perceive that so many in the church, so many followers of Jesus are living more out of their political tribal identity than they do out of their identity in Christ. Every pastor I talk to, every, every podcast pastor I listen to, they say the same thing. The political divides in their church are tearing their church apart. And so a simple test, I think, for all of us to keep running in the background of our life is whether or not we can critique our party based on Christian principles. So if you look at your party, whichever party you align with, you can look at that party and say, this is where they follow the truth of scripture and this is where they don't. This is where they look like the way of Jesus and this is where they don't. If you try to run those diagnostics and you're not coming up with anything, that's a good sign that your political enmeshment has gone too far. And your Christianity and your politics are kind of one in the same right now. So you need to do a lot of hard work of untangling those. Another good sign is just how, <laughs> I know this is, a, <laughs> this is a triggering word, but just how triggered are you <laughs> all the time? <laughs> One of the podcasts that I linked you to this week in the devotional, I think on Tuesday, is an interview between John Mark Comer and Rich Velotis. And Rich Velotis goes through this long sequence of what tends to happen when, when we hear a criticism of our favorite political figure, whoever it may be. When we hear a criticism of them, it is this web of connectivity that leads back to the deepest identity of how we think of ourselves. And so when somebody criticizes our political people or our party, we feel like they're criticizing the deepest part of who we are. And so we respond with anger and retaliation or anxiety and vitriol. That's a good sign that your political enmeshment is gone, has gone too far, that politics has become the center of how you're thinking and acting and living and not Christ. I think this is one of the most important areas of spiritual formation for followers of Jesus today. To recognize this. Because I'm more convinced than ever that as you feel more politically homeless, you'll feel more at home in the kingdom of God. Because the goal is not to be aligned with a, a, a party. The goal is to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's the core identity that we are to live out of as followers of Jesus. And there is no political party today that perfectly represents what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Nor should we expect there to be. I have a simple example to prove the point. 
based on the deeper principle, the, the, the truth that Jesus communicated in our text today, that all human beings are created in the image of God. A simple example shows how neither party is living within the values of the kingdom of God. Think of how your party talks about the other party. Think of how your favorite talk show host talks about those on the other side of the political aisle. Think about how your favorite politician in campaign season talks about the other candidates. The slander, the anger, the vitriol is through the roof. For Christians, that is not acceptable. That person is created in the image of God. They may have some ideas that you disagree with with how the country should be run, but they are an image bearer of God. And if that be the case, they are worthy of honor, dignity, and respect. And we can disagree, of course, but not at the expense of the dignity we are supposed to give them and show them and the love we are supposed to demonstrate towards them as followers of Christ. Simple example that shows neither party is following the kingdom values in that. And so as Christians, we need to be aware of that. I've got more though. That one, that one should be sufficient, but I've got more to show just how we, followers of Christ in his kingdom, it's okay to feel politically homeless and in doing so be at home in the kingdom of God. As Christians, we're called to honor the image of God in both the unborn and the unexpected mothers. How do we honor the image of God in the nationalist and in the immigrant and in the refugee? How do we honor the image of God in the black man and the white man? How do we honor the image of God in both the police officer and the criminal? The man and the woman, both the abused and the abuser. And shoot, let's go to the lowest common denominator. How do we honor the image of God in both the soldier and the terrorist? I remember reading Christians calling terrorists animals. That is living out of your political American identity more than it is out of your Christian identity. What if that terrorist is a human being whom God wants to redeem? It changes how we view them. We can't hate them then. Instead, it respond, our, our, our response should be love, compassion, care, concern. Now, politically, there's solutions <laughs> to there that our government is tasked with managing and doing. But as a Christian, our heart's response towards them must be to recognize that they are created in the image of God and consider that how that changes how we view them and how we talk about them and how we think about them. Because we serve a savior, if we're living out of our core identity in Christ, we serve a savior who when dying on the cross, when hung there, nails through his hands, through his feet, just can't breathe, he's dying. They're about to stick a spear in his side to finally kill him. They beat him, 39 lashes, 
with a whip. He's bleeding all over the place. They mocked him by putting a purple robe on his back and crown of thorns on his head. This is the guy who, while hanging there, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's living out of our identity in Christ, is viewing others with that kind of love and charity, grace, mercy, kindness, when we enmesh ourselves with these other identities, political identity, most obviously today, we cannot respond like that. Instead, we respond with hatred and we want to destroy them and own them. Primarily being a part of the kingdom of God and living out of that identity changes how we view everybody and think about the world. The early church was dealing with this a lot. I'm not gonna go into great details, but the last line in each of these says it all for Christians. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. How do we get to the core of our identity? Recognize that the core of who we are is in Christ. And that's how we should primarily think, view, and act towards others. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Paul here is talking within the church and how we should view one another as primarily image bearers of God in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, he uses this brilliant analogy of a dividing wall of hostility that has been broken down because of Jesus' work on the cross between Jews and Gentiles. And in our culture today, when we live out of another identity, this tribalism that we're all facing, it rebuilds walls of hostility between us instead of us living out of our identity in Christ. So the answer, guys, is not to just keep like, beating ourselves up about how we, we constantly fail about this or that identity and live out of this one. The answer is to just look at Jesus. Look at Jesus for who he is, for how glorious and awesome he is. And then all of the, the political uh, parties that we want to align with, the other ideas that we have in our culture, the tribal wars that are going on all around us, look foolish. They look silly because we get Jesus. We get to be in his kingdom. That's awesome. And he has truly taught us the best way to live and to be human. And if that is the case... What he says, and when we live out of his identity, that's the best way to do it. It may be difficult, it may be challenging, it may leave you without a political home in our culture. That's okay. You've got Jesus. You've got his kingdom. And that's worth it. Would you bow your heads with me and let's just pray for a moment. Invite us all to just confess that Jesus, you are the center of my identity. Lord, may my thoughts, my actions, the way I think of others, the way I talk about others, originate from my identity in you, recognizing that they are also image bearers of God.
Jesus, we want to know you more. We want to know you so well that when we're tempted to live out of these other aspects of who we are, that we don't take the bait. We constantly go back to the deeper truth, the more fundamental identity of who we are as image bearers of God in Christ Jesus and live out of that. Allow that to influence how we view our family life, our political life, our work life, all of it. Because Jesus, you are worth it. And we trust that your way is truly the best way. Jesus, we love you and we praise you now. Let's stand and sing praises to Jesus together. If you guys need prayer while we're singing, there's prayer available on the back. Some folks would love to pray with you.
as we were singing that, I was just, I had this image in my head. Um, my first day of my freshman year of high school, um, I grew up in a small private school, and then I went to public school in town here in ninth grade. And I remember walking into the lunchroom on my first day. I went from a graduating class of uh, 12, and now I'm, there's a lunchroom of 500 kids, and I don't know anybody. And I went and I sat down. I don't remember where I sat down, but what happened to me over the next year is I became the person that had people to sit with at a lunch table. And I, I think about that all the time. What we're talking about today, the idea of tribalism, the idea of identity, and, and how as human beings, we will, we will take on the characteristics that we need to take on in order to have someone to sit with at the lunch table. And I remember my sophomore year, it was a different lunch table. It was a different me. I became a different kid. I was just, I was a chameleon willing to do what I needed to do to make sure that I wasn't the kid who had nobody to sit with at lunch. And today, whether that's a mom group or it's a chat room, wherever we're finding that community that makes us feel like we still have a lunch table to sit at, I think we're scared to be alone. We're scared to give those things up. So as we're singing, not for a moment will you forsake me. For me, it's about trusting that, hey God, if, if all of this stuff falls apart, if our country uh, continues to head in the direction that it seems to be heading, if politics continues to get more polarized, God, I have to trust that you're not gonna forsake me. I'm gonna have somewhere to belong to no matter what. And that, that, that place is with you. Because that's what we want. We want to belong, right? So Lord, we thank you that you won't forsake us. Our belonging can come from you, God. That our community can be centered on you. That our identity can be centered on you. Our lives can be centered on you. God, would you help us to unlearn those other things? the things we've taken on so that we would have a seat at the lunch table, the things that we've taken on so that we knew we would have people, that we knew we would have, have friends, that we wouldn't be the person, you know, I don't know, home on Friday night, or the things that we took on so that we would feel safe, Lord, whatever it is. God, would you expose those things in our life? Reveal those blind spots to us. Replace them with your goodness. Replace them with deep, intimate friendship with you, first and foremost because you're not going to forsake us. You're not going to let us down. You're good always, forever. We believe that. We thank you for it. We thank you, God, for your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.